I am Plata on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. We continue uh, talking to poets and their poetry this National Poetry Month as Matt Rader joins me again. The celebrated poet recently published a new collection, Ghost Hawk. The notices for it have been really terrific, lauding Matt's poetry for its uh, beauty, its humility, and intense vision. The writer Jan Zwicky describes Mr. Rader a seer. This collection is described as... Um, a guidebook uh, of imagination from grasslands to star fields to the weather of the poet's body. It describes so evocatively the outdoors around his home in the Okanagan Valley and how it affects not just his life but ours for the better. I'll ask Matt to reflect on love and loss as well as how he is. Asking somebody how they are is such a throwaway. We do it on impulse, often not listening to the answer that uh, question elicits. So I thought... Matt might have some thoughts on that itself as I begin our conversation that we taped nearly 14 days ago. Matt Rader is an award-winning author of four volumes of poetry and a collection of short stories, What I Want to Tell Goes Like This, which uh, was published by Nightwood Editions, who publish Ghost Hawk now. He was first on the program back in 2019 for his collection Visual Inspection. He is a core member of the uh, Department of Creative Studies at UBC Okanagan, where he lectures in creative writing. He joined me from Vernon, B.C. Please uh, welcome back to the Plant Online Program, Matt Rader. Mr. Rader, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Pretty good yourself. Excellent. So th- th- that phrase, how are you, um, when you hear that directed to you, um, a lot of us think that's a formality, a habit. Um, do you think um, enough people want to know how you are when they ask you that? <laughs> it's funny. My dad always says the exact same thing. You say, how are you? And then he launches into a long story <laughs> about how he is. And then, and then he says at the end, you ask. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I think I understand that people people do want to know on one hand, but they also are, are just trying to uh, engage you in the, the formalities of a conversation and and in some ways, those little um, ceremonial gestures are really nice. They're like the things that we—they're the equivalent of shaking hands or, mm. or something. And uh, and I, yeah, I try not to get too precious about it, I guess. But I, I also know what you uh, are yeah. getting, kind of getting at. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it, the the phrase itself has taken on new meaning over the last two years. Um, totally. I, I'm not a person who says that because if if I really did care, I'd have called you, say, you know yesterday or an hour before to find out how you actually are but uh, in after reading ghost talk and um knowing what i know about you um you're, you're one of the few people where I'll, I'll invoke that phrase because i do want to know how you are and and I, i'm assuming that a lot of readers um will wonder about you or, or want to know uh information about you do you find that intrusive at all or, or gratifying even um i don't find it I, I wouldn't say either gratifying or intrusive. Like, uh, I've written about my health. You know, we, last time we spoke was about a uh, visual inspection, which was all about my health. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's a public conversation or a point of public conversation. Um, and, uh, you know, with the people who are, it, as you sort of alluded to, depending on who you're talking to, that the question of how you are and what that it means something different um and 
I guess maybe as a, a, a bit of a public speak figure or with a public voice talking about my health is a, like, it's something I'm doing not just for me, but for other people. Mm. Um, and, and in that sense, uh, yeah, I think it's probably nice to be asked that question. And I appreciate the thoughtfulness with which you approach this kind of like offhanded, uh, trope of conversations, you know, like, uh, that's a, that's a generous, uh, way of paying attention that you have. And I do think, as I said a moment ago, over the last couple of years, I think um, we've paid attention to that when we use that phrase, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, when the pandemic hit, a lot of uh, my colleagues who I work with who are uh, in sort of disability arts, uh, we talked a lot about how everybody was suddenly disabled. Mm. um, That one life was limited and uh and the like really anybody could be struck which is actually the truth all the time yeah it's just that the pandemic uh really like forced us to see the that kind of uh, vulnerability that we all live with yeah yeah you know there's such a a lot um in in this collection ghost talk about the, the world around you um it, it inspires um a number of poems and and you know um I guess no. it, it, for for a lot of us, it, it, considering the wider world, if you will, the outdoors as part of us, uh, that's not something that a lot of us do. Um, well, I just have to. It, it, I don't know if you can hear the car honking. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my apologies. No, not a problem. Yeah, you were asking me about the outside world, and suddenly the outside world just <laughs> <laughs> heated me yeah. right right through the conversation, but. Uh, uh, can you just say that again about the, about yeah. the like, uh, natural world? Yeah, a lot of us don't think about that or, or don't don't consider the wider world or, or the outdoors a part of us. I, I don't know. Maybe that's just me because I live in Vancouver. I live in a, a city, if you will. Um, yeah. And I don't, I don't. I was never an outdoorsy person. I never, you know, went out for for hikes and the, and the sort. Right. Um, for you. Um, uh, it obviously is a part of your life because you, you've written about it in Ghost Talk. Um, why do you think it is a lot of us, myself particularly, don't see what's happening around us as part of our life? I don't really know. It's a good question. I mean, it's funny because I've been asked in a few interviews lately, why, you know, why do I write about nature? And in my own sense is it's just the biggest thing out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. When I when I look around, I'm like, well, actually, you know, the skies and the mountains and the trees are actually most of what's out there. Um, and I remember I lived in Vancouver for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I do remember starting to, like, look at the streets and realize that there was a whole earth underneath them. For a while, I lived at, um, like, 16th and Fraser. Oh, yeah. Which is a swamp. Yeah. It's a, and, and, like, it, it kind of dawned on me because the road would buckle in like 16th was always buckling and yeah, being repaved yeah. and whatnot it's because the water table is quite high there and like it's messing with the road and it was this realization for me that even in a city that is sort of putting on the mask of the built environment the rest of the, like the functioning of the earth is um it overwhelms but those kinds of human cultural yeah. um uh structures and I, I don't. I'm not sure why people don't pay more attention to it in those terms. Like, 
you know, writing about Ghost Talk, like I, I wrote, started writing Ghost Talk around the same time that I started writing Visual Inspection, and it was um, very much about learning to live with my body in a place, in a new place. I had just moved to the Okanagan, and I, I think that I was paying attention to the land in the same way that I was paying attention to my body. They were, mm. they seemed um, inseparable, and and you're exactly right. Then, like the insight for me in writing those talk was that the internal uh my internal world and the external world of you know we call that nature but it also includes human culture are are not actually different places they're just uh like extensions of one kind of continuous realm uh even you know you can i can the thing i would tell myself is uh i I stand in the field and i can look at an aster and then aster comes from uh the Greek word for star, mm. and I can imagine a star, a star or an aster in my mind, and I can look up and I can see the star, and I can do all of those things without having moved at all. Um, and the, there was that kind of continuity of um, or continuousness of world. I think was really critical for me to be able to live in my own body, which uh, it was painful and uh, dangerous. And when COVID hit, it was um, that realization really, I felt like I could take COVID in stride in a way that I might not have uh, previously, Mm. Um, uh, in part because I was was already used to uh, not not doing things and not going places, um, and I'd already found another way to expand my, uh, my sense of self in the world. Yeah. Uh, that didn't rely on, you know, going to movies or restaurants. Sure. Or yeah. So, what do you make then of uh, people? And people still do this now, even two years later, uh, who complain about sort of the restrictions that that they have to endure because of, of a pandemic. Um, did you view it as just whining? Say. Well, I don't know. On my more generous moment, I I think. I know it's very hard when your story about yourself and about your own life is um, radically changed, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a kind of grief. Yeah. And uh, so I, I think that I can really appreciate the, on some level how difficult it is for folks and, you know, different folks in different contexts will you know, it'll be even more meaningful uh, to have those restrictions. You know, that said, I do really believe in uh, care. Like, I believe in sacrificing for your community. Mm-hmm. Um, and that matters to me in a way that, uh, you know, regardless of my health, my personal health experiences. And then, so in that, from that perspective, from like, just as a citizen who wants to, uh, who wants to be, to care for my fellow citizens i don't have a lot of patience with uh, um yeah complaining mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but but from a more like human individual perspective i can understand why people feel that way yeah, yeah. um a, a theme that, that you contend with in the the collection ghost talk um i don't know if it, it, it's something you did consciously but it's something that i got after reading it um there is such a connection between love and suffering <laughs> um, yeah. What did you? Uh, 
I guess, what, what did you learn as a result of writing, say, Ghost Talk about that? I mean, is there, a, it, it, I mean, do you have to have one to have the other, say? I'm not sure. I don't know if you, like, I don't know if it's some kind of dialectic in, in that way exactly, but I do know that, you know, that's what compassion means, love with suffering. Mm. Um, and, you know, as a segue from that conversation, like the question about folks and their restrictions and the experience of the pandemic, um, there is, you, you can see with great love, you can, uh, weather a kind of suffering, um, and be prepared to, to, uh, to live a life like in visual inspection. I really like thought a lot about, the difference between pain and suffering, mm-hmm. um, and in Ghost Talk, I, 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 I think you're right. I did think about love and suffering and how those two things might um, be together, um, and how, in some ways, and from a human perspective, I'm not sure that there is much more than love and suffering. <laughs> yeah. Those might be like the two grand themes of our uh, existence. Um, I don't know. I'll, I'll think a little bit more about whether they they need to go together. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I will say this about love, though, that, like, love is one of the great paradoxes um, that, and I, we often in literature or in art talk about these kinds of, we, we figure a paradox as being an, a kind of absence, but I, I, you know, I have two kids, and I think about how I love each of them I love each one of them more than anything. Yeah. And how and how you can, uh, which is, you know, paradoxically, it's not possible if you love one thing more than anything, it should, uh, you know, dis- disqualify the other. But it's not how it works at all, um, which is such a, like, profound kind of abundance. Um, yeah, I guess and something that is yeah. worth thinking about in in all of our you know in the COVID climate crisis world, like what mm-hmm. does it mean that to have access to an abundance like that? Yeah, I guess it, 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 I don't have kids, and I don't plan on having kids, but I can see how a guy like you who has kids, uh, your, your conception of love is expanded. Yeah, and and you know that that's just where I learned it. I don't think yeah. it's necessary to have children in order to experience that kind of um, expansiveness around love and also to be awake awakened to the expansiveness of suffering because mm. uh, when you have children you know for me anyway uh, the possibility of their suffering is even greater than <laughs> it's even more terrifying than my own suffering yeah. Um, yeah. which is I know a bit of a cliche uh, the parents say but Cliches are—they uh, are cliches for a reason. But they're true. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, you contend with loss in a number of poems. Um, it, it, I mean, that is something that we all contend with mm-hmm. um, in life. Um, do you think you share any wisdom that you might have gleaned on your own here? Do do, do I share? Do I have wisdom to share? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Did you find that that um, because 
you read the, you read the the notices the the reviews of of your work, and a lot of people um, see wisdom in your work. I mean, Jan Zwicky uh, oh, refers yeah. to you as a seer. Um, <laughs> do you think um, you, you've learned something along the way in in, in the course of experience and in, in the course of life that there is some wisdom in the poetry that you commit? I think that writing poetry has forced me to attend to things uh, in a way that I'm probably or forced. It's invited me to attend to the world in a way that I might not have otherwise. And the, you know, I'm 44. I started writing poetry as a teenager. I started writing poetry seriously about 21. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I guess that like long practice of, um, trying to look at the world and be in the world and think about it through language. Um, I guess one of the things that I've learned is that anything, I think, any kind of attending to the world, um, given enough discipline and playfulness, can lead you to a thing that we might call poetry. Mm. It doesn't have to be language, but it could be gardening it could be farming it could be like there's a lot of um a lot of ways to attend and be in the world to to show care for the world uh and poetry just happened to be the one that i started following and so is this as much for you as as the audience or vice versa oh yeah i mean i don't (laughs) i write poems really to explain things to myself that is mostly what I do, and I often go back from the poems and I think, wow, like, <laughs> somebody, whether it was me or somebody uh, working through me, knew something when they were writing this down, because I forget it all the time, right? And, you know, going through about my life, and uh, I had a teacher, Joseph Millar, who said one of the best things about being a poet is you don't have to be smart. And <laughs> <laughs> I really... I really uh, like at the time, I thought it was funny, but as the yeah. you know, as the older I get, the more I appreciate how uh, <laughs> wise that was. And uh, and you know, I know lots of poets, and most of us are smarter in our poems than we are in real life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so writing these poems down, I mean, it's wonderful if somebody else can get them, but it's even more wonderful for me. I I have a line in Ghost Talk that says something like. Uh, what surprises is what we already knew, mm, and yeah. and I, you know, at forty four, that's the thing I'm constantly su- surprising myself with is, well, how did I forget that? And oh my goodness, I've known this, and then yeah. I've had to learn this nine times. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Why does this keep going? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I just so, turned forty a couple weeks ago, and so it's um, you know, it's one of those things where everybody points out to you that it's a it, it means something you know because it's a it's yeah. one of those big numbers and to me i just feel the same as i did you know a year ago totally um yeah. but um you know I, i'm reading as i'm reading your book or i'm reading other things i'm, I'm you know the, these these existential things sort of you know come across one's mind um whether one wants it or not and so there's a lot of thinking about um sort of the the, the wisdom or what what i really need to know when i need to know it you know yeah yeah, uh, I mean that's what that's what these little poetry—they're like little memory boxes or something that yeah. uh, you kind of place 
and my own sense of poems, and this is also my sense of great songs and great paintings. Um, they're great because you can live with them for mm-hmm. a long time. You know, you like the there are paintings that you could go to every day for the rest of your life and just have some relationship to it. Um, or songs and poems are like that for me anyway. Like my favorite poems or the poems that speak to me, they, they reveal something. It's almost like they're a brand new thing every single time I go to them. Yeah. I, there's a book by Shana Sini that I read every year and I, I'm constantly surprised. It's almost like I haven't read it, and I, for, I forgot that that poem was in there, or that poem was about this thing. And I think what's actually happening is that, of course, I'm seeing it anew. I'm seeing it from my perspective now, and it looks very different than it did uh, when I was 20. And so I could only see some parts of it back then, and now I can see a different, different aspect. So I was reading um, Russell Thornton's recent collection of poetry. Um, he was on the show a few days ago. And um, uh, in one of his poems in, in his book, Answer to Blue, he uh, has a prefatory line uh, of yours from Visual Inspection. Yeah. And um, I, I don't, I must say, I don't, I don't remember reading that specific line from your book. Yeah. But when, uh, as I told Russell, um, when I saw that, uh, it reminded me of visual inspection and, and some other things that I was thinking about. Um, what, what is it for, first of all, what is it like to see um, th- that something that you've written has affected a reader as it has? Well, I mean, it's particularly sweet that it's Russell Thornton uh, for me. I mean, Russell Thornton is one of my, I put him in the top five living poets, mm. period. Right. Uh, so, um, Russ is, I've known him a long time, and he uh, he's just somebody whose work I can't, like, I, I read it every year. I, every time there's a new book, I read that, and I read the books over and over again. So it's particularly sweet to have Russell uh, find some connection there. Um, and then he wrote a beautiful poem. I mean, that's the best part, is whatever thought he had from my work, he wrote this other poem, and that poem is like gorgeous and uh, meaningful. Yeah, for people and listening. A, yeah, for people. Such a, yeah, for people listening to this, it's called Hinge, and and people can get that in his um, new collection, Answer to Blue. I actually assumed the same thing that you did that he he read what you wrote and then wrote Hinge, but he told me that he'd written the poem already. I suspected, actually. Yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> And then yeah. he said that um, after reading you, um, he said it, it it made what he wrote sense, or or and then that's why he put it up front. Yeah, I think that 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 I mean that makes sense to me. I would have done the same thing if I was Russ. Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, nevertheless, the, the like whatever relationship those two things have um, is a real treasure. It's resonant. Yeah, for me now it's one and the same to me, and and, and um, um, that's the treat of it. That, that's something that I read a couple of years ago. Um, you know, still can evoke memory for me, and and the sort, and and something new that I've just read. Um, it all comes together. I mean, that's what life is, isn't it? There are these connections. Yeah, I mean, 
I've been I've been sort of playing some kind of poetry connection game with Russell for 20 years, I think. <laughs> so, you know, like when I first started writing, Russell was kind of like my poetry big brother. Right. Uh, I thought of him as this, you know, uh, wise person who I would go to, um, like literally for advice for years. Uh, and and it's just, it's really wonderful to have all those connections. And I, and I think they're probably further connections all over the place. Russell and I haven't talked about this, but um, my dad has the same condition that Russell does and that he writes about in that poem. Uh-huh. So I had this other personal, which I write about just kind of briefly at the very end of visual inspection. So it had like these other um, resonances for me personally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's, um, it makes me want to go back to read visual inspection now and, and reread it again. Yeah, well, if you have, if you have time, I, uh, <laughs> that'd be great. Yeah. Next time we talk, I'd be curious. Yeah, indeed. Um, there, there's a poem in Ghost Talk, um, uh, which in the acknowledgments you uh, mentioned that it remembers your friend Elise Partridge and your teacher Patrick Lane. Um, yeah. I, I don't know Miss Partridge, but but uh, I, I did interview uh, Patrick uh, a number of times. Um, I, I'm curious to know about... Um, what he was like as a teacher oh well uh so patrick was my teacher in my very first creative writing class ever Mm -hmm. and i didn't know that there was such a thing as a poet like who was an actual person (laughs) like i never really like thought about it i guess oh yeah yeah. i think i was 18 years old (laughs) and i I mean, I knew that poems had been written, but I didn't really understand that there were actual people walking around who were poets. <laughs> and, um, and you know, I, I come from a blue-collar northern Vancouver Island family, so I was doubly surprised that not only were there people who were poets, but that they looked like a poet could look like my dad, mm. who was a crane operator. And that's and, and I so I had this real immediate kind of affinity for with Patrick. Like I, I just. Uh, saw him as somebody I knew. He was from my world. Yeah. But he was also in the university teaching us poetry. Um, and he was, he, he would say things like, I'm never teaching first year poetry again. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> like these sort of gruff uh, Patrick Lane things. Um, but he also, you know, he taught us James Wright poems and I, and he was generous with me in a way that like I probably did not deserve, you know, like as in terms of what I was uh, producing as a writer uh, at that point. But, you know, Patrick and Patrick and Lorna were both really, really good to me. And I stayed in touch with Patrick for years. And mm-hmm. uh, the last time I saw Patrick was at uh, the Victoria Symphony. Oh, yeah. And we both did a, we were part of this uh program that Jack Hodgins had put together where we read poems um, and stories and the symphony kind of um, played music in response to that. Um, and I was actually, coincidentally, my dad was there too. And so I, I had a moment to be able to like talk to Patrick about how what he meant to me um, and, uh, and how it was connected to this like 
this idea of what it was to be a man and to be a poet and to be blue collar and that kind of uh, that kind of thing. He was just—he was always uh, so gentle with mm-hmm. me, even though he was not always gentle. I watched him not always be gentle with folks, but yeah. uh, he was very kind to me. And for that reason, like he, in some ways, all my poems are for Patrick. <laughs> Yeah. I think that that's not a totally crazy thing to say. Yeah. What um, uh, you, you teach now yourself, um, mm-hmm. and um, you've, you've developed a readership over the years, um, fans and, and, and critics alike. Um, I'm, I'm sure people come up to you and, and tell you what they what you mean to them. What is that like? Um, well, I mean humbling it's always humbling to uh, uh yeah like I, I uh, it is really an amazing job to spend time with young people imagining things and exploring their lives i mean it's an interesting place in the university where the the real subject of what we're, we teach in creative writing are the lives and imaginations of the students. That's what that's the material we work with, and that's kind of uh, I don't know if I want to say holy, but it's something approaching holy. It's uh, very very important, and yeah. I I think it's a this unbelievable privilege to get to spend the that kind of time and to, to live in, to work in that kind of space with other people. So, uh, well, you know, I I mean, I am as touched by the, by the young poets who don't, who, who don't thank me, but just go on to write poems or go on to have like beautiful families or whatever they choose to do in their lives. Like, um, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about the, like, the receive, receiving uh, receiving thanks or like gratitude in that way is always a, a little tricky, but I just try to say thank you and mm-hmm. um, and remember that I didn't really do anything. I just happened to be, <laughs> be there yeah. Yeah. and <clears throat> mostly hold space for them. Yeah. I, I, I probably asked you this before, Matt, but um, in terms of, of uh, writing poetry, I don't know if one can be taught that, but uh, I guess an appreciation for poetry. I think that can sort of be taught, and I think that's what people like you do. You mentioned Patrick a moment ago. Mm-hmm. I think that's what he did, right? Oh, certainly. Like, Patrick Patrick loved poetry and thought it was sort of, you know, poems and work, I think, were the most holy things in Patrick Lane's life. Uh, and And he transmitted that that and made it possible uh, to to love and care for poems in that way. And of course, uh, there are things about poetry that can be taught that are craft-based, mm-hmm. like how to actually uh, create certain effects and, and so on. Um, those things are can be taught, but they're meaningless without something that can't be taught, which is um, some kind of passion or compassion or openness. You know, it's sort of like, like I tell my students, 
you can you can write a perfect sonnet, but nobody cares. The poem will never be good because it's a sonnet. Mm. It'll be good because of something else. You know, we've all heard the guitar player who is a virtuoso but has no soul. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we've we've heard the people who can barely play but have some kind of thing that they transmit. Um, and poetry is not unlike that. And uh, the only way to hone that is by to care enough to keep going back and uh, paying attention and um, being playful and uh, open. And that's something Patrick was. Yeah. Um, the thing I was thinking about as I was reading Ghost Talk um, was um, what the process is for, for, for the poet you especially in terms of editing and rewriting, if you will. Um, we hear that a lot um, about writers, that, that editing is, is or rewriting, I should say, is just as much writing as anything. Um, sure, yeah. One assumes that, that a, a piece of writing, a, po- a, a poem of yours, is um, cut down in the process. I mean, is it? I mean, did you come up with, say... Um, a hundred words and then have to sort of cut it down or, or shape it in a way that uh, as we'd see it in, in the published book? Um, it's more in this, in this instance, I actually started out trying to write a long poem mm. and then it became a long poem in part. And then those parts became their own discrete poems. Um, so it was less about, it's not like a, there was a block of words out of which I carved these particular poems, mm-hmm. but maybe there was like a whole series and I took away like, you know, half of them. Uh, so there were all these poems um, and stanzas that I just took out and I didn't use uh, in this book. Uh, there's this weird experience that I've had and I know that other poets have, which is a bit different than, say, I think, fiction writers, mm-hmm. prose writers' experience, and that is that, you know, you sometimes get the, like, the best poems, they uh, they spring close to fully form, they come out almost completely there, yeah. and you have the impression that it's just, wow, I just wrote that in the first draft, and it's wonderful, but it's only because you're forgetting that you tried to write, like, five poems before that, that also and then you hit this other one, yeah. and uh, and some part in in those practice uh, poems, you have like you know refined what it is you were trying to get at, mm. um, and partly the way I move, I I do move very like like almost one word at a time and very carefully as I'm as I'm going, um, and trying to find the exact right word to, before I move on to the next line, which is. You can't operate that way when you write prose. Yeah, right? you, yeah. it's, you would, you well, you would never finish anything. <laughs> you would just yeah. always be there. Uh, and actually, I, and sometimes I love writing prose for just the freedom that it, um, you know, of composition that it that it allows, uh-huh. and like the clarity of just saying something very plainly or directly. Uh, it, it's a, it can be a bit of a relief. How do you write? Do you, do you use a pen and paper? Do you use a computer screen? Uh, I both, and sometimes I do. Like I make uh, audio recordings for myself. I see. I yeah. mean, like I always have a notebook, and I'll make notes. Um, 
and like it really it sort of just depends um, as I go along. Uh, one of the one of the things about Ghost Talk is the, the uh, lines are quite short. The poems there aren't that many words, and and that's actually in part a function of uh, my health that I had. Um, uh, well, I have arthritis, and so I have this uh-huh. pain in my hands, and yeah. I find um, typing too much to be very difficult. So, right. in some ways, I I was experimenting with like, well, what are the fewest words I can use, mm. um, and and uh, and also some of the like uh, tools that I have to assist me in in um, sort of speaking to my computer, for example, speech to text kinds of mm-hmm. software. They're dreadful for writing poetry. Um, you know, as you can imagine, they don't really get line breaks and yeah, <laughs> sorts yeah. of things. Yeah. Um, you know, I could talk all afternoon with you, um, but um, I, I've kept you longer than I said I would already. So I, I, oh, it's all good. I will uh, let you go with with a great thanks for for not only Ghost Talk but the, the time you've taken to chat with me today as well as a couple years ago a few years ago now with with visual inspection i I look forward to the next book congratulations on this one in the meantime and and all the best yeah thank you joe i really appreciate it always nice to talk to you you ask good questions and um yeah hope we get to do it again the book is called ghost talk it's published by nightwood editions it's uh, author matt raider joined me on the line from vernon british columbia in vancouver i'm joseph plato